Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Also down the line, we have James Sim, who's a fund manager at Schroeder's. And also from the US, our US banking editor, Ben McClanahan, has been talking to the head of Play, the fintech company. This week, we'll be looking at the outlook for the Italian banking sector ahead of a crucial referendum called by Premier Matteo Renzi. Secondly, we'll be looking at the outlook for the UK banks. We have stress test results, which actually is why we've delayed this podcast by a day, and also concerns expressed over the buy-to-let market. How those two play together is an interesting topic. And finally, from the US, that interview that Ben has done with the head of Played. First, though, Martin, are the Italian banks doomed? Well, there is a very important referendum coming up this weekend, which is causing a lot of angst among investors. Share prices of Italian banks are extremely volatile at the moment, particularly the shares of the world's oldest bank, Monte di Paschi di Siena, which is in the process of trying to raise over 5 billion euros at the same time as this referendum campaign is playing out on which the future of Matteo Renzi hangs, quite literally. And you could make the case that even the future of the EU and the Eurozone hangs on this. If the Renzi government falls as a result of this referendum, a a more populist government replaces it in some follow-up election, and there is a risk of Italy leaving the Eurozone or the EU as a result, which is not inconceivable in these crazy political times we live in, then the Italian banks are going to be going through a lot more volatility. We ran a story this week which raised a lot of eyebrows in Italy, I think it's fair to say, saying that essentially there were eight very weak banks in Italy, the biggest of which is Monte de Paschi, but there are several other smaller regional banks that all have their futures literally hanging on the outcome of this referendum. And the polls in Italy are not looking good for Mr Renzi. Well, as you said, the markets in Italian bank securities are extremely volatile at the moment. Let's go now to an investor in precisely those securities. James Sim joins us from Schroders. So, James, I suppose the big question is, is all these jitters that we're seeing in terms of Italian banks and bond valuations justified in the light of the referendum that's coming up? Yeah, it's an interesting one, that one, because there was great hope, wasn't there, basically post-Brexit and particularly post-Trump, that we were moving into a more sort of reflationary environment, which would be very positive for the banks. Now, it's not going to be a straight line, clearly, and for the Italians, the referendum is a hurdle. I mean, my point now, given the moves we've sort of seen over the last couple of weeks, is that we've pretty much priced in a no vote, I think. So if anything, I'm buying a little bit of these things. I own a couple of Italian banks and I'm buying a bit more ahead of that referendum. And what about the big bank that I suppose is certainly domestically systemic, if not beyond Italy's borders systemic, 
Monte de Paschi, it's got a huge mountain to climb in terms of raising this five billion plus of fresh capital. It's right in the middle now of a so-called liability management exercise where it's trying to convince some of its junior bondholders to swap their debt for equity. That's the first part of a complicated recapitalization, which may see new anchor investors coming in and may then be followed by some kind of form of further capital raising rights issue or, or whatever. It seems pretty slim to expect all of these to succeed, especially when you've got the referendum going on in the background. It's certainly the case that we need the referendum out of the way, whichever way it goes, before Monte de Pasqua can recapitalise. And let me be very clear, you know, I think there's no value there. So I wouldn't, I'm not participating in that equity raise. I mean, the slight problem is that if you wipe out the current equity and you put the five billion in to Monte de Pasqua, it's actually a little bit more expensive than all the other Italian banks, but obviously with much more risk and a sort of lower quality book. So that's the issue. You sort of need the rest of the Italian banks to rally to get their valuations up so that Monte de Paschi can raise the five billion, but those banks aren't going to rally until Monte de Paschi has raised five billion. So it's a very circular problem. Really, I think it's going to have to be state aid, ultimately. It's too systemic. Now, the good news is we're not talking about a huge number in the context of Italy's debt, right? Five billion is a drop in the ocean for an economy like Italy. But it's become a political problem. But it will be resolved one way or the other because it's certainly resolvable and it's massively dragging on Italy's GDP growth. I mean, effectively, there's a credit crunch in the country. So two final questions for you. Firstly, does it matter which way the referendum goes? As you say, the market's kind of pricing in a no vote, i.e. expecting Renzi to go, which you've got to believe would be bad news generally for the banks. And the second part of that, if that's the kind of political background, what does that mean then for Brussels' take on Italy going forward, including its stance on any state bailout, because this is a pretty contentious area in the light of rules that have been brought in to essentially stop countries bailing out their banks and actually to impose losses on bondholders instead. So the answer to the first question is, in the short term, it matters immensely. In the medium term, I'm not sure it matters that much. It matters immensely because if it's a yes vote, the Italian banks are going to rally 20% on the day. If it's a no vote, my estimate would be they'd go down sort of 5 to 10%. And more, perhaps, if Renzi, which I'm sure he will, resigns and you went to an early election. I think he'll resign and there'll be a technocratic government appointed, is my base case. So it matters in that sense. Medium term, I'm afraid what's happening is we're going back to the Italy we sort of all know. There was great hope two to three years ago that Renzi was going to be this great reformer. And frankly, it hasn't really delivered in the way that I had hoped it would. He's done some good things, but probably not enough. So we're back to that sort of very low-growth Italian environment with lots of political instability. We all love to talk about elections. There's always elections in Europe. There's probably one to two a year normally. This year is a bit busier. So medium term, I'm not sure it's a big issue, actually. And frankly, there are some perfectly plausible reasons to vote no in terms of the lack of checks and balances in the new electoral law. So in light of that, then, if it's not a big issue medium term, the bigger question is, what's Brussels' response, as you say? Now, for me, the problem is, again, it's just a political one, really. Europe, very frustratingly, doesn't really get its act together unless it's in the midst of a crisis. You know, it very rarely moves to head one off. But I do detect, I think post-Brexit particularly, there is a shift in tone, obviously, as someone who watches the words that come out of European politicians very carefully. I do detect a sort of slight shift in tone, particularly the Germans, and particularly Schabler is very anti, in a Germanic way, wants to do everything by the rules. 
But I think even they have realised that it's much better to have Renzi for the future of the European project than it is to have Beppe Grillo. And frankly, in France, it's better to have Fillon rather than Marie Le Pen, if you're pro-Europe, which they are. So I think in that sense, self-preservation is a very powerful motivating force. And that's why I think ultimately pragmatism will prevail. And specifically on blocking or not any bailout of MPS? I think they would block a direct bailout. That would be sort of too obvious. If the government literally subscribed for the five billion rights issue, if it was done as a sort of public-private partnership with a bit of arm-twisting, the sort of classic Italian solution, I think they'd probably let that slide. Insofar as they can, I mean, obviously there's legal requirements that have to be satisfied, but I think the political pressure would be to allow it to slide. One to watch, clearly. Thank you very much, James Sim from Schroeder's. So let's go to our second topic of the day. Martin, you got up very early this morning to go to the Bank of England and hear what they had to say about the state of Britain's banks. Stress test results are out. Tell us all about them. The big news from the stress tests which came out on Wednesday morning from the Bank of England is Royal Bank of Scotland. The government-controlled bank was the biggest failure of the UK's third round of annual stress tests of the banking sector. The bank has been forced to come out with an announcement that it has presented a new revised capital plan to its regulator to increase its capital ratios and cover the shortfall which has been identified in these stress tests, which is worth about £2 billion. So they're planning to do that by cutting more jobs, cutting more costs and selling off and, and shutting down more of their struggling uh, parts of their business. It's more shrinkage for RBS, more bad news for RBS, and this will ultimately delay the point where RBS returns to some kind of normality or starts repaying a dividend, and ultimately the government is able to sell down its shares. Other news that came out of the stress tests, Barclays and Standard Chartered didn't do great, On some measures, they fell below their hurdle rate in the stress scenario, although the Bank of England said they didn't have to submit a revised plan because actions they were already planning to undertake would allow them to cover the shortfall. Overall, the Bank of England said that the banking system was in better shape than this time last year and was largely able to cope with the stress scenario, which you know included a 2% fall in global GDP, as well as a big fall in UK house prices, a massive drop in the oil price, etc., a kind of doomsday scenario, and still continue lending to the economy. That's the crucial thing that Mark Carney, the Government Bank of England, was talking about. And several of the banks came through in pretty good shape. Lloyd's, Santander, UK nationwide, HSBC, all came through in pretty strong shape. So the overall message is a positive one, but there was a negative outcome for RBS, more pain there. Their shares were down on Wednesday and some not great news for Barclays and Standard Chartered, although they scraped through. Now, a crucial part of the market that played into those stress tests to a degree, but has certainly been an issue for regulators for some time now, has been the buy-to-let mortgage market. This is a part of the market that's really got very hot in recent months and years, actually. Emma, tell us why this is a particular concern to regulators, why it is so hot. 
Well, it's quite a contentious issue. Buy-to-let is largely interest-only loans. And so just after the financial crisis, this caused a lot of issues because borrowers, a lot of them didn't have proper repayment vehicles in place. They were actually just paying the interest back rather than the capital. And in the case of banks that lent a lot in the buy-to-let space, this left them exposed when borrowers weren't able to pay back. So it's an interesting one to happen at this time because actually the buy-to-let market has cooled off quite significantly over the past year. Lending has dropped by about 20 to 25% year on year. And that's partly because there have been some cooling measures put in place by government and by regulators. Exactly. There was a 3% stamp duty tax imposed in April this year on second homes. There's also been changes to mortgage tax relief, which comes into force next year. And at the same time, the Bank of England is keeping a close eye on what the lenders themselves are doing. For example, when they lend to landlords that have more than four properties, from next year they're going to have to do tighter affordability checks on those professional landlords. So they are sort of clamping down on this area. And they've tightened up those that monitoring very recently, Martin. Yeah, by value, monthly buy-to-let mortgage lending in the UK is down about a third since these tax and regulatory changes came in in March, April. But the regulators are still concerned, and I think possibly, reading between the lines, the reason for that might be that in this very low interest rate environment, buy-to-let mortgages are actually some of the more profitable products for the banks because they are seen as higher risk and therefore higher return. And the competition's even more intense, so the banks are perhaps relaxing their controls slightly to win more business or at least to keep their business up from this as it's one way to offset the decline in interest rates. It's also worth noting that the buy-to-let market is unregulated as well and that the Bank of England lacks data in this space, so it's also perhaps seen as a bit of a data-gathering exercise as well. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting. It's all, of course, pegged on the valuation of property, which remains to be seen what happens to that when interest rates start to go up and if there's any downturn in the broader property market. Definitely one to keep an eye on over the coming months and years. Let's move on to our third story of the day, which is Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor's interview with the head of Plaid, a fintech company in the US, which is specialised in data gathering. Zach Perret, thank you very much for joining me. Can you just describe to me how your technology works and how it makes people's lives better? In short, Plaid, we build infrastructure for financial services companies, for financial technology companies. And we underpin a lot of what people call the FinTech ecosystem. What that means is that we actually build a platform layer that sits between the bank accounts and the applications that allows a consumer to connect their bank account into any of the applications that they might want to use. On our back end, we integrate with just about 10,000 different banks all across the U.S. And then our platform will then power something like another 10,000 or so applications on the other side. These range from very, very small startups to kind of large and growing companies to some of the largest banks. American Express and Capital One are two of our customers uh, on the bank side. And then the more traditional applications that many of you might have heard of are things like Venmo or Wealthfront or Betterment or even in the cryptocurrency land, we power companies like Coinbase and, Mm -hmm. uh, and many others. So you're really enabling all those thrusting fintech companies we hear about. Yeah, we work with really most of what, what, what people are now calling fintech. And the, the core idea is that consumers need to connect their bank account. Your bank account is really the hub of your financial life. And in order to do anything that relates to your bank account, be that to receive payroll, be that to make an investment, uh, be that to even do your taxes uh, or pay a friend, to do that you need to connect your bank account to something. And that's where Plaid comes in. We focus on that bank account connection. You said you encountered some resistance from banks early on in allowing you access to all this data. How do the banks attempt to throw sand in your wheels? 
to be clear, uh, it's not necessarily the banks attempting to throw sand in, in Plot's wheels. We actually work very closely with the banks. I mentioned a couple previously. Uh, those banks are, are our customers. Um, there's certainly been an evolution, and some of you might remember the back and forth that a few companies had about a year ago. Yeah. Um, it was kind of covered by Wall Street Journal amongst many, many others, where there were some blockages to Mint. There were some issues with some of the applications out there in the ecosystem really existing. I would say since that time, in fact, we've really seen this new era of collaboration between the banks and the fintech applications, largely with the consumer's best interest in mind. So what we've seen is that consumers demanded that their bank accounts be able to work with these applications, that they be able to do budgeting, that they be able to do their taxes or receive their payroll. Uh, and all of that, that, I would say, seems good in the best interest of the consumer, probably in the best interest of the bank as well, to have the consumer receive the payroll and, and be able to do the things they need to do. Um, and so over the past 12 months, and, and even before that a little bit as well, um, we've really seen the, the banks coming to the table and saying, hey, how do, we, how do we help create this platform? How do we help create this ecosystem um, that will kind of push all the financial services, in my opinion, forward? So consumers can utilize their data to live the financial life that they want to live. They can utilize their data and, and permission their data into the applications that are building the budgeting tools, the expense management tools, the bookkeeping tools, the accounting tools. In my opinion, this is a really big win for the consumer. Plaid, uh, as an entity, has been thinking a lot about this, helping to kind of get through a lot of the FUD. Uh, we put out a couple of white papers, really helping delve into the issues at hand, which is what is data transmission, kind of what is data authentication, how does this work from a security perspective, how does this work from a compliance perspective, from a scale perspective. Yeah. Um, and so for the ecosystem, I think this is a great thing and really will enable uh, continued innovation from, from FinTech. How do you address the question of, of security? You're not taking ownership of this data, are you, at any point? That's a great question. I guess we have to define what you mean by data. So when we're talking about data, we're generally talking about transaction data or uh, data necessary to set up a payment or to validate an identity or to run a risk or a fraud check. And as such, this is data that the consumer is largely responsible for, or that they largely have ownership over, but it's often housed at the financial institution. So think of your bank statement. It's kind of like the way that you might share your bank statement with an accountant. Instead, we just build a technology layer to allow you to automatically share that data with the accounting tool that you might use. So from a security and compliance perspective, we've really started out the company with a focus on security and compliance, ensuring that what we're doing is at the peak of the market and really focused on something that protects the consumer in, in, in the best way possible. And as such, we, we really expect that of the entire fintech ecosystem, we've built a lot of tools to extend that reach, extend our security and con compliance veil into the broader fintech ecosystem. Just finally, can you describe your growth trajectory from here? Because for some of the fintech companies, especially in the lending area, the dollars aren't flowing as freely as they used to be, especially this, this time last year. Yeah, so I'm certainly not an investor, but as I start to look at the macro trends, we've really seen, uh, we've seen two emerging trends. One is a flight to quality in terms of financial technology. So um, in, this, in the case of lending, it's really been a flight to returns. So which, which lenders are, are generating the greatest return and uh, those are continuing to get the, the lending capital dollars. Um, we've seen that kind of across different aspects of the financial technology ecosystem as it continues to mature. The second thing that we've seen is an enterprise shift. So we've seen a lot of fintech companies existing and either selling to the enterprise, so selling to the bank or selling to the large company, or being copied by the enterprise or partnering with the enterprise. So some of those examples in the robo-advisor space, you saw Schwab come out with intelligent right. portfolios. Um, in the lending space, you saw OnDeck actually partner with Chase to gain access to that distribution. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then you've seen companies like SigFig pop up uh, again in the robot space to sell in white label tools into those banks. So uh, that's been kind of an interesting and, and major shift that we've seen. So the, the fintechs aren't necessarily aiming to, to kill the banks anymore. It's more, it's more civil. I don't think that fintech should ever have said anything about disrupting the banks. And in my opinion, it's really about working with the bank. Again, the bank account is the hub for your financial life. It's really the crux of, of where you receive your payroll and where you do all the, the actions that you have to, to do. And so that's never going to go away. It's now a question of building the best possible consumer experience, the small business experience on top of that. And that really requires cooperation. Zach Perret, thank you very much for joining me. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Ben in the US, Martin and Emma here in the studio, and our guest here in London, James Sim, fund manager at Schroders. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.